Welcome to Unleashed. We are so glad to have you back again this week. And uh, this week is going to be um, kind of lining up with the, the NFL season, the college football season. You know, you try to look at some of these podcasts and think, you know, what can I put out there that guys would want to actually stay tuned in for? And hopefully this is going to be uh, one of those weeks. Um, Eric, before we get started, what do you got this week? We always do a question each week. If you haven't picked up, maybe you're new to this. That's okay. But we always start with some question, and sometimes irrelevant, and sometimes I'm irrelevant. So, hey, we got a we have a couple really good ones here. Um, CJ Adams wants to know: Our life displays our priorities for uh, all to see and know. What priority is our life displaying for all to see and know? Did we hit or miss the mark? Ooh, yeah. I think hitting the mark for me is really understanding that I can't do this life on my own by trying harder. I can't fix my own stuff. I'm not trying to get deep real fast here, but I think when I get to understand what grace really looks like and I walk in that and I offer it to other people, I think I've hit the mark. I don't think it's that performance-based stuff that so many of us maybe were raised with um, because it's what Jesus' performance was. No, not mine. Yeah, I think hitting the mark is... Living love, living grace, you know, those things. So that's what people need to see. Absolutely. And because we did this a little different, I actually just want to go through all these questions. Yeah. We can just hit them all briefly. And um, Greg Giles would like to know, what makes you laugh? What makes you cry? And that can be for you (sighs) and Ken both. Wow. What makes me laugh? What makes me cry? I'll take one. What would you like? Um, by the way, we'll get in here in a second, but we've got Ken Dodson in the studio and he's been a friend of mine for a long time and uh, he's got a pretty amazing story. But which one would you want? I mean, let me just set the stage here. The guy sitting across the room from me can, you know, just up until he had surgery here a couple of months ago, he was still benching over 500 pounds. And now he's not, he's almost as old as I am, which is as old as asphalt. So that's pretty old. <laughs> but which one do you want? You want laugh or cry? Cry. I kind of figured that about you. You just seem like that emotional, sensitive kind of guy that rips people's heads yeah, off. Ever, ever, that's the first thought. <laughs> he was an MMA fighter too, you guys. He fought in the cage too. So cry. All right. What makes you cry? Uh, honestly, softness, things that are sensitive, seeing softness in people, seeing hurt in people, um, seeing tenderness, kindness, sacrifice in people. That is humbling, because it um, it moves you to emulate those things. Yeah, I was I was watching a reel the other night. You guys know what reels are. You've got phones and everything now, but it was it was reels of soldiers coming home without telling their kids at school they were coming home. And I, I mean, I get teared up just thinking about this. I see this little girl come out. You know, she was probably about thirteen. 12 to 13-ish, you know, she's right at that age where I'm going to be a teenager. I'm not quite yet. I'm, I don't know whether to, you know, play with My Little Pony or be thinking about future prom dates, you know, kind of a deal. So she was standing there in the hallway, and her dad, you know, still dressed in all of his Army stuff, comes around the corner, and she sees him, and she looks at him, like, right through him because she is not expecting him, and then it hits her, and you see her start to shake and then she goes up to give her dad a hug, and then she realizes, this is my dad who I haven't seen in, you know, who knows how long, a year, whatever. And she jumps up and wraps her arms and legs around him, buries her face into his neck, and just begins to weep. That gets me. No, that's the kind of stuff. Yeah. 
well, let's do both. Laugh. I'll do. So I just told you that that was mine, and I wasn't even supposed to do the cry. Um, I'll start then. Laugh. What makes me laugh? <sighs> I'm trying to be, boy, this is a tough one. What makes me belly laugh? You know, I can laugh at some joke or something someone's told, but what is it that makes me belly laugh? It's probably when I see pets do stupid things. <laughs> I was going to say, that's why I shouldn't let you go first. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, when you see a, an animal do, you know, like a real even of something with some pets doing some dumb thing, a cat stuck on a fan going around and around your you know, ceiling because he jumped up to grab the cord. You talk about the real stuff. When they have a dog superimposed with a person putting words into his mouth. That looks oh, yeah. Like, okay, that are saying the most goofy sometimes can be maybe borderline inappropriate. But, right. But I think that way about uh, what animals might be thinking and doing and yeah some of those dog videos can be kind of rough but they they, okay but they make me laugh i'm an an imperfect man sometimes those dog videos make me rough yeah i got it wow (laughs) see he knows my joke it just wasn't funny (laughs) yeah there we go all right this is my 14 year old at home she's like you get all these bad dad jokes and i'm like they're collectibles Write them down. You're going to want these someday. Yeah. Uh, or yes. not. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. In the interest of time here. Okay. Brett D. Longwell. He put, well, he's got D in his profile name, so I guess okay. we can read it. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Okay. So, Brett, why is it so difficult to be honest with, you, with each other when we're all in the same boat? You'd think it'd be easier. Wow. This is a, actually, actually. This is a great question because it kind of leads into where I think the podcast is going to go, I think. We'll see what the Holy Spirit does. But why is it so difficult for us to be honest with each other when we're all in the same boat? Um, I'm going to answer this, then I'm going to go back to the bio and then kind of walk us in that way. I think we all, um, again, I've talked before about a man's need for respect. You know, a man struggles with respect only when he feels like he's not getting what he thinks he deserves. Um, that's usually when it when it'll set us off as a trigger. So why aren't men, you know, honest when we're in the same boat? I think part of it is because we really don't either understand who we really are in Christ, that our identity is in him and not in, um, you know, the things that we do, how we look, the money we have, the body type, whatever. So I think we, we, we pose, and, and I've talked about this. I think everyone, not just men, women can fall into the same thing as well. But one of the things that is I'm going to be, you know, talking about um, this with, with Ken today as we're here, you know, some of the best conversations I've ever had, there's, there's three places. On a road trip, you know, we're going somewhere out west, whether we're going hunting or doing something, you know, that kind of stirs that masculine soul a little bit. On a front porch overlooking the mountains where everything, you can see the, the majesty of God and how big he is, understanding how small we are, but yet he still loves us. And the other thing is just around a campfire, there's just something that happens around campfires with guys. We get on us, we talk about real stuff. And, you know, we, we on the road, you know, when Ken's gone hunting with me, how many times in Colorado? Three or four times. Like four. Yeah, out there. And we have a ball. I mean, we, we just goof off, tease each other the whole way there. But the beautiful thing is because we trust each other, because we know each other, we can razz each other, understanding we're just pulling each other's leg. But we really can get down to... I'm having a struggle right now, and I, and I want you guys to pray with me. 
Um, we have another buddy that, you know, that, that lives down in Indianapolis. One time he called us up on the phone and he was having some, some heart issues. And he said, I want you guys to come. I just need to talk about it. And we processed. And, you know, those are the kind of brothers that, you know, you, you go to war with, so to speak. Um, I think that's just really important stuff. Well, let me get, let me kind of get rolling in here. Was that the last one? Nope. I got, oh, you got another one. Oh yeah. Oh me guys. Now this come one. On. Yeah. Um, Bruce Dykeson wants to know what is the best advice to tell a young man who's getting started as a husband? And really when you have to be a young man, like what's advice for guys being started as a husband? Yeah. First marriage. Ken, you want to roll with this? Well, I don't know how much detail we want to get into, but as you know, I might have some experience with. Well, yeah, go give some advice and we'll come back to that and we'll walk into it. It'll make a little more sense. Um, I was really immature and made some immature decisions and now coming to understand what the difference between contract and covenant is in a marriage and understanding what it really means to commit in a covenantal state. In a contract, which I was doing much of the time, look, we have an agreement here and you're going to do X and I'm going to do Y. And as long as that happens, everything's good. And if it doesn't happen, then the contract can be voided. And that's not scriptural. It's not biblical. It's not the relationship modeled for us with God or God with his people. And what I've come to understand is covenant best described for me, our pastor once said, uh, agape love is a willingness to serve another person despite their willingness or ability to reciprocate. Now, if somebody loses the ability, we can make allowances for that. But you get into a, a committed relationship and somebody's simply unwilling, that's a, that's a difficult thing. But in a covenant relationship, somebody being unwilling does not give you license to change. It is a covenant that I will do regardless of what you do. And to, to save from a, a soulful place, I have committed the rest of my life, regardless of what you choose, because I made a covenant. And the covenant was not to my wife. The covenant was to God. God. Yeah. And, and, and when, you, when you go from an intellectual awareness of that to a deep, heartfelt honor-filled commitment to that, you don't have a choice. You have relinquished the choice. And then it becomes really pretty simple. Since I have no choice, this is where I'm going to be the rest of my life. You will make choices based upon making that life the best life you have. And there's no room for thinking of anything else. And, And so when mentally you get in that place, to me, that's when you're prepared to be married. Yeah. And if you and if you aren't in that place, you haven't really thought through that, then then maybe it's not time to be married. Yeah, and, I mean, I think so many of us, you know, have made mistakes in our marriages that we we look back and we say, "Man, if I'd have only known this at this time." But the beautiful thing is that God already knew, 
and he had a plan like he did with David, you know, and, and we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when David had the affair. Why would God allow him to do that? Because he loved David. David had to learn something that he was only going to learn through making a mistake. And I've said that, I think I said it last week with Josh Kaufman when he was on here. I said, you don't know something until you know it and you can't see it until you see it. Well, anyhow, let me let me kind of just go back, take a, a step back here. And let me introduce a guy who you, you just heard. I said, I already told you he could bench over 500 pounds, probably closer to six in his heyday. But you can tell he's smart, too. And uh, I've got a, a new shirt that we just, actually, I brought one in for Eric today, that I, I take it to my events when I'm speaking. And it says, you know, when you sit with warriors, the conversation is different. That's the whole thing with this whole Unleashed podcast. And you're hearing it right now. When we get into the real stuff, the conversation is different. It's the real stuff. It's not the the poser and look at what I can do or what I've done kind of a deal. It's about look at my mistakes sometimes, but they don't, they don't hold me hostage. They don't label me because my identity is in Christ. So let's go back. Um, what was that guy's name that used to have the Twilight? It was a Twilight Zone. He goes, imagine if you will, traveling through time, space, another dimension, whatever. <laughs> it, it probably sounds like Twilight. I don't think it was one of those shows. Yeah. Well, let's go back. And I, I want to kind of just introduce, you know, Ken, um, we first met, I don't remember what year it was. It was probably around 1981, 82. And you were going to, back then it was Anderson College, you were playing football there. Um, what year did you come in? 80. Okay, yeah. I waited three years because I knew I was a little bit older than you, but I was trying to think, when was that? But you were playing football at AU, and I was I was looking at your AC back then. I was looking at your uh, bio. So let me just kind of give you a little bit of this. It says, uh, you know, Ken Dodson, his last name, came to Anderson University from Vero Beach, Florida, to play football for the Ravens in the fall of 1980. Um, he earned four letters in the football field and um, left as one as, as Anderson College's most decorated players. I, I still see some of those records, you know, when I get a chance to go over there and look around. Uh, he was a two-time all-conference selection, 84 and 85, three-time NAIA All-American, 82, 84, 85. Uh, a member, and explain this to me, also a member of the NCAA Little American team in 1982, All-American team. What? The Little all I didn't know. It came out with my name on it, and I had to ask <laughs> my buddies, what is this? Uh, the NAIA All-American was for the NAIA classifications, uh, National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics. Little All-American included the NCAA. So if you were selected for that, that included NCAA Division Two, Division Three, and NAIA One and Two. So it's a higher level. Gotcha. And then I think the thing that, and I was talking about this, we rode together over here in my truck today. And I said, you know, I didn't realize, you know, I knew that you had the sack record, but it wasn't even close to the next guy. When you were in, in, in college, you the one year, was it your sophomore year that you had 16 sacks or was it? Yeah. Yes. 16 sacks in 10 games. And you had 45 over four years. I mean, those are some huge numbers. Well, 46, but who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> there we See, go. There you we jammed go. me up there because you knew go. it. You said 46 on the way over here, and now you tried to yeah. just to trigger a reaction. Oh, and I was trying to figure this out in my head. I'm going, man, in four years you had that many sacks. I'm going, that's like, what did I say, one point or 11.2 sacks every season if you averaged them out. I mean, those are some big numbers. Even, even in the NFL, you're looking at these guys. Those are big numbers. So – you know, Ken, he went back to, to um, Anderson after he I'll, – I'll get into his college stuff here in his second or the, or the, the uh, football career. But after you, you know, did some time, you know, playing uh, football, and we'll talk about it, you went back and you got – was it two or three masters? Two. Just two? I, uh, I was expecting, you know, your performance, you know, you'd be like at 10 or something by now. No, in and, fact, this will tell you something about 
while you're trying to make me sound good, people ask me why I have two master's degrees in the same discipline in business. Well, the first was I was too chicken to try to go get my MBA at first. So I went and got a master's of science in management because that's what I was doing at the time. And when I decided to leave the corporate world and go out on my own, I had to have an MBA. So I begrudgingly went back and got another one where I had to have economics, finance, and accounting. So <laughs> I wasn't sure I could do. Well, be, so, so before all this brainiac stuff, he's a brainiac. Um, you know, before all that stuff, when I knew you in, in, in college playing football, I mean, you were, and again, I'm just going to go back to those days and remember, it was like big man on campus, and I mean big man on campus, strongest man on campus. Um, you know, he's got all these records, you know, at the college. And you, when you, you got hurt, was it your junior, senior year? I was hurt. I missed two seasons. I missed my freshman year after the first game of the season with an MCL left leg. And I missed uh, my junior year with a ACL reconstruction of my right knee. How many surgeries have you had now? 25 today. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, man. What was that television show, Six Million Dollar Man or whatever it was? You've got to be above that by now. <laughs> yeah, don't feel like Jeez. it. Jeez. <laughs> But you, so you got out of college, and I, I remember that. You know, I remember going and watching the games and just watching the line to see if you were going to get to the quarterback. You know, just just dominating everybody. So when you got out of school, um, you had were being scouted, obviously, because you got picked up. Now, who was it first that picked you up for their training camp? The Broncos. The Broncos. And I, re, I can remember you telling me the story. Now, how big were you at the time? You're six three, right? Uh, well, I was. I've shrunk. Okay, <laughs> I'm we, old we now. all have. <laughs> Uh, six three and about two eighty five. Yeah, you know that's that's big boy, and so he's going all the way to Denver. And what kind of car were you driving at the time? I did what rookies do. I got a. Uh, well, back then it was I think it was wasn't even a Nissan. Yet. I think it was still a Datsun two eighty Z. Right, and they're like built for a family of six or something. Well, <laughs> or was it for one person? How for Lilliputians, maybe right? And then his, his co pilot all the way to uh Denver was a very unhappy Doberman Pinscher. And what was that Doberman Pinscher doing on the trip? Uh, she was mourning the recent loss of the puppies that had uh found homes and still lactating. So you had a lactating Doberman Pinscher <laughs> driving 1,100 miles to Denver, Colorado. And was it a cool day? I spent a, a week in Kansas one day. <laughs> in the, the, the story goes, uh, so I'm driving this car that was not designed to pull a trailer, and I had a U-Haul. And I had this Doberman in the back. And interesting thing happens when you're hauling a, pulling a trailer with a car that wasn't designed for it. I couldn't go over 45 miles an hour and I couldn't turn oh. the air conditioning on because it would overheat. So I'm driving across canvas, which you and I have done yes, many times, times yep. right? At 45 miles an hour uh -uh. with a very unhappy. We're doing government. 85. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's a long trip. Worst trip I ever took. It, no question. <laughs> Not close. And was your dog like a big baby with you? I mean, oh, uh, she was an independent thinker and and could be uh, spicy and fun. But right then, no, she was just not happy, right? She yeah. was physically not happy, emotionally not happy. Yeah, I know that drive. No thanks. Not with a lactating Doberman. No. <laughs> okay, so you got done. You went out there, um, and you signed with, with Denver for their training camp, or whatever it would be. Right. Uh, so then what happened with, with that one? Uh, signed 
draft night of 85, the Bronco scout had come to our house and just stayed there. So his intention was to sign me right there. Um, in the event I wasn't drafted, there were several teams that had me on their draft board. I ended up not being drafted. So I signed with the Broncos right there. Uh, I went out about a week later for the mini camps. They did all the testing that they had for us. And then they told us they would let us know. Um, all the Denver draft picks came back out for the summer camps and their top free agents that had performed well in the mini camp they invited out. So I got the phone call that I was one of the ones that was invited to come out and spend the summer out there. So that would have been why in, uh, it would have been in May I made that trip because of course Anderson University at the time. That was in 85? That was 85 yeah. going into 86, right. And they were not set up to manage people going off to the NFL. And so I just dropped out of school. And right. I went out there and, of course, ended up with Fs in my entire last semester because you got to finish them at a certain time while I was in Denver. Yeah, yeah. And so I went out there, stayed there, and then into training camp. Interesting. I finished up with Fs, but I've got two master's degrees. <laughs> Well, uh, just put that in the back of your head somewhere because maturity that's important and focus for you guys is listening. a wonderful thing. So I'm curious with the Broncos, who was the first person you met, like with a team or anything, when you got there? Uh, well, the one person everybody would know. Of. My the first person I met was John Elway. Oh wow! And that was the first person, the very first person. Uh, they met me at the airport. They picked me up at the airport, one of their runners, and they brought me over to 5700 Logan Street, which was where they were at at the time. And it was in the afternoon, and so the. The rookies and free agents had the facility in the morning to work out, and the veterans had it in the afternoon. And so went in. Um, they introduced me to Al Miller, who was the strength and conditioning coach at the time. And so he was showing me around the place. Well, John Elway was there working out. And I know coming from Indiana that a lot of people don't like John Elway. Right. Um, yep. I'm going to tell you he was one of the nicest guys I'd, I'd ever met. This is John Elway. Now, he was only in his second or third year, but he was still John Elway. Right. And and I'm an undrafted free agent from Anderson University. And they introduced me. Shook my hand, Ken. Welcome. Welcome to the Broncos. And I can do for you. He was a really stand-up guy, as most of the people I met there were. Did you have a chance to lift with him in there at all? No, because the veterans vast majority of them were in the afternoons while I was have been one of the gotcha. rookie free agents and we had to go in the morning. I'm just curious. I'm just, this is my brain going, but how compared to the other guys doing your position or some similar positions, I mean, were all those guys benching, you know, like five to 600 pounds? I uh, don't know because when I got out there, I was in a hurry to show them this. Uh, and know. Al Miller said, I'm not interested in seeing that at all. He said, any moron can lay on a bench and push weight off his chest. Huh. Uh, I want to see you do these things. And so he was an early adopter of the uh, the European Soviet bloc kind of training. So we did basic, we'd, we'd bench press and we'd squat, but we did a lot of Olympic lifting. Okay. So power cleans, push jerks, things like that, that, that required some athletic skill to do and a lot of explosive power. He was training athletes, not, yeah. not power lifters. So then how long were you there with the training camp with the Broncos before you moved on to your next location? I was there all through the summer into training camp. 
got into training camp, got dinged up a little bit, um, and got released. Uh, they were a really good team. They went to the Super Bowl that year. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that you don't know when you come out of a really small college and don't have any agent, they didn't have a first-round uh, pick that year, uh, but their first-round pick they had, they got in the third round. It was their first pick. And um, was Tony Colorado, who was a nose tackle out of USC. Yeah, well, that's and what so that, you got limited choices. You're not even picking to the third round. Well, yeah, but, but that's who the, the point is that's who they went and got. Well, they signed me as a nose yes. tackle, too. So gotcha. makes it really hard. So then your next stop was where? Uh, when I got released there, I stayed out there. Spent the spent the, the season coaching at a local high school, and came back here to finish here, being back to Indiana to finish school, and uh, was was working through that. And uh, the next season came along, and I had done some internships with the Colts because they trained at Anderson, right, and got to know some of their coaches and stuff, and uh, Willie Broughton was the guy's name, was the youngest player in the NFL at the time. Was a big nose tackle, really a good good player, good guy. Got hurt. And so they were looking to have somebody else fill in. And so the Colts knew me. They had been one of the teams that was interested in me before the, the draft the year before. So they signed me to a contract then. And uh, I spent about a month with them. And for those of you who have ever, what's the movie, uh, The Replacements, mm-hmm. Kenna Reeves, that was 87. And the, the team went on strike. Oh, <laughs> man, talk about bad things happening. So, well, go ahead. Well, I don't think it was, look, I was playing with house money, right? right. So you're being really right. kind, okay, about what I could do at Anderson. And, and I, I had some skills that were rather unique. Not in the NFL, <laughs> okay. I mean, the, I mean, you think about how many guys actually make it in. What's the percentage? I think it's uh, one and a half or two percent of yeah. college just get a shot. Yeah, not, that doesn't make it. Yeah, I was trying to think about you know that kind of stuff in your life, having to train like that, focus, stay disciplined. You know, how much was it as a, as a kid motivated wanting to be in the NFL? How much of it was discipline in your everyday life to get to those kind of, because you've been successful in business too. And that's something I want to talk about. You went back and got your master's. You know, how has that kind of discipline carried you, you know, through with what you do now with the ups and downs and. Well, I'm going to throw you a softball here. Okay. All right. Cause I know you're new at this. <laughs> um, I'm drowning here. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody thought, when I was in high school, nobody thought I'd go to college. And in college, nobody's thinking you're, they're go, I was going to the NFL. So I wasn't working towards that. Uh, everybody that plays imagines, right, fantasizes, dreams. I came to Anderson with the goal of being an All-American. I had buddies of mine that we were walking back to the our dorm one night after walking to a store and we were talking about what our goals were and that was it wanted to be an all-american so i worked to achieve that goal but the softball is this uh, we were talking earlier and i wrote it down and what i wrote down was insecurity and i forgot 
now the, the topic because I thought of it came around to that, but we didn't. Um, I worked and did what I did and didn't realize it at the time, but ultimately it was insecurity. You know, I didn't I didn't come out of, out of high school as a big, highly recruited kid, you know. And uh, I, as an adult, said this to some people close to me one time. Um, I said, you know, if you if you look at my resume, I've you know went to college, was a three-time All-American. I still hold some records there. Two different NFL teams. Was a global vice president of a billion-dollar company by the time I was forty, and I've run my own business, and I have two master's degrees, and I've got a couple of black belts in karate, and I fought in the cages, and I'm a fraud. Okay, so what that does is it lets me go into my virtual file cabinet in whatever arena I'm in and pull out the thing, right, that says, hey, don't challenge me, don't question me, because here's my credentials. It really comes from insecurity. So everything that I did when I was in college was trying to be enough, trying to be good enough. Because the team that we had there then for a, for a small college NAI Division II school was good, were really good. And, and there were a number of players there that I just wanted to get on the field with. I just wanted to be one of. So trying to be enough. And so all along the way, that instilled habits that are with me today, and, and we've talked about those things, right? It's, it's are you enough? Yep. Yeah, I think, you know, what Eldridge talked about in his book, Wild at Heart, I mean, the biggest question, um, do I have what it takes? Right. Um, you know, am I enough? In that moment when I'm called upon to come through, can I, will I, do Do I have what it takes? Um, and, and, you know, I, my question, as you were saying that, I was sitting here thinking, because I, I know your story, the stuff we don't have time for, those, and some of it we, we will talk about, but I was thinking about this. At what point in your life, with all the, and it, we all do it, we all do that, um, I want to show you this part of me, but I don't want to show you this part of me because I want you to respect me, right? A man's other need, you know, the second biggest one is, you know, I need your respect. At what point in your life, what, what age do you think it was? Can you go back and go, this was when all of a sudden I came face to face, not with somebody else, but with myself. When I could really go, this is what I'm doing because of this. If I understand the question, that didn't happen for year, decades, right? Yeah. Uh, I was talking to God about this the other night. I spent so much of my life living for myself. Now, people who most people who knew me then would have thought, would have said, "I'm a good guy," you know, kind to people, go to church, you know, do the do the stuff. I was living for myself, completely for myself, and. During, uh, during that, God blessed me. I was fortunate. I was blessed and uh, made more money than I thought I would make, accomplished more things than I thought I would. And the time came, well, I'm 61 now, probably in 50, early 50s, yeah. where God decided that it was time to use me for his purposes and to allow me to see what life looked like 
when I'm really um, on my own. And it wasn't pretty. Yeah. And and so many things, you know, because you, because you you start to think it really is about you, right? When all along you've done these things and you've accomplished things that nobody else thought you would, you think it's about you. And the process of God disabusing me of that notion was a long, painful one. But it led to brokenness that, as you know, the process leads oh, to yeah. redemption, right? Yeah. And so I'm trying to remember the actual question about th- that you led because, again, I'm— Yeah, it, w- it was really more about uh, this. It was like, at what point in your life were you able to really look at yourself like you're doing— like almost you're talking to someone across right. the table that you can see everything about them. When did that happen to yourself? That, that happened in my early 50s. God allowed enough trials and tribulations and consequences in my life for me to see myself— for who I really was. And it was only when that happened that the process of God through the work of the Holy Spirit could start to change me. And that process continues today and will continue the rest of my life. But that's when I was able to see myself. And, and then everything changed. So, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the things that I've done, and I've said this to you, and I've said this to some other really close friends of mine, None of that's important to me anymore. I don't feel about it the way I used to. I don't, I don't cherish it. I don't. It's almost sometimes uncomfortable to talk about it. And I understood that in this environment, you won't want to do that some. But what I would really rather talk about is I had all those things and I, and I wasn't fulfilled. And it wasn't, it wasn't real. And and, and when God broke me of that, then those things finally became really valuable because sometimes it opened up, whether it's the, the business that I have um, or being able to talk about sports or things that I've done, that it, it opens up opportunities to talk to people, uh, oftentimes in my companies. but um, And, and it, it creates a starting point for me to have conversation but it's a it's a starting point from humility because none of that stuff really matters. Yeah, it just doesn't. And and I have had the opportunity to experience watching God manifest Himself in my life and change me. And you know how insignificant being a three-time All-American is compared to watching the sovereign God of the universe perform miracles. Yes, in your life. Once you've experienced that, it it is life changing. Ken, this is this is why I had you on. You know, when we first talked, you go, "Why do you want to have me on?" I said, "Because here's the thing: when when a man looks at a, a at a model of what they think about a man, you know, just generally, you know, strong, driven, um, not afraid, you know, all these different things that men go out and we try to conquer, whether it's in business or whether it's in fighting or women or whatever those things are. The reason I wanted you to have you on, and you said it a minute ago about, you know, I'm not sure why we're going down this road. That's exactly why. Because guys need to hear this, that the end pursuit, what we think it's going to look like, and when we really want what God wants for us, it's going to look different. But it's going to take time to get to that place. It's going to get to that place where we do see God as that sovereign God who made all this, but yet he made me. How did that work? And we begin to fall in love with this incredibly powerful God who made us and is helping us deconstruct the poser within us 
so we can see what's most important. And here's something that uh, I wanted to say, and I, I just, when when I, I hadn't seen you in, in a number of years, and I had just written, um, what book was it? It was Into the Wilds. And I had maybe made a post on social media or something, and the next thing, I, my, my wife was going to be throwing me a book party, right? And you show up at the book party, and you came in, and you kind of waited. You know, you were kind of standing around. We went outside. You said, come here a minute. We went outside, and you said, I, I don't know how God is calling me to help you. I, I don't know what it looks like. Um, maybe it's, it's financially or something right now. But whatever it is that God has blessed we, me with, I believe in what you're doing, and I want to come alongside and help you. You didn't just give me words. For several years, you did that. You know, it wasn't a tax write-off for you. It was nothing. It was saying, I believe in this ministry and what you're doing to reach men, and I want to come alongside that. You would have never said that on here. You would have never said that to, never said that to anybody. But that's why I wanted you to talk, because, guys, we look at last week, we had the winner of The Voice. You know, Josh Kaufman was on, and he came down and he said, you know, when everyone thought I was at my peak, my highest, I was actually at my lowest. It's when I was the most lost, you know, questioning God. You sat here and you talked about, you know, I was really trying to be somebody, and it was all about me when I was younger. And we look at those things and we go, fame, fortune, you know, popularity, all that kind of stuff, and we go, that, that's what I want. But God says, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you just enough rope, right? You go ahead, try it. How's that working for you? And eventually we humbly come back and we go, God, I kind of messed some things up here, and I don't want that. I want what you wanted in the very beginning for me, but I know that I had to go through that stuff. Like we talked about David, I had to make some mistakes to get to that place. Guys, I hope you're hearing what I'm talking about here because this kind of brotherhood is, is real. It's not the, you know, the fake stuff where we sit around and we talk about the, all the trophies we've, we've taken or the fast cars. That's all fun, but it will never have anything to do with who you really are. The best conversations we were talking about, for me, were those ones when we're on these road trips. Because we all kind of pose and do our fun stuff, but at the end of, the, of that conversation, we're, we're actually like, like it's sitting at a campfire where we're talking about the real deal, the real stuff. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking about our, our trip to Colorado a minute ago. And this is, you know, you see, you know, you see Ken and you go, yeah, he's, he's a big dude. And then we get out to an environment because you hadn't ever really done this kind of hunting before. And so I was bow hunting and he had a gun, he had a bear tag. And he was trying to, you know, get, I think at that time you had like a 308, an AR platform, wasn't right. it? And then you got a, was it a 6.5 Creedmoor the next time? Yes. Yeah. So I was trying to hold that AR, that 308, and this thing was a massive heavy gun. And he's walking around like special ops with this huge thing. And it's so funny because he's sitting in this right away. I said, hey, this will be a good place to sit. Because you can see the bears, you know, you can see when they're crossing sometimes going to get water or bedding or food or whatever they're doing. I said, man, just get your chair, get off to the side, you know, make sure you got your orange. You had to have his blaze orange hat or whatever it was at the time. And I'm, I'm all camouflaged, right? Well, that's my world. You know, the NFL, to have some linebacker come screaming, running at me, I'd be like, help. You know, that's, but here I was in my environment and I get all cameled up and I got my face paint on and he's sitting down there and I can see him from this little lofty spot. He can't, he doesn't know I'm there. I snuck into this thing real well and, and he's got his phone. So I start texting him. Hey, Ken, you hearing banjos yet? <laughs> and then I think I texted, that's a mighty pretty mouth you got there, boy. <laughs> and he's, he's looking around like, where the heck are you? I'm going to yeah, kill you. You're about to enter my world now. <laughs> but it was just one of those things, you know, it's, but it's got to be a totally different thing. You know, you've got a, you know, 285 pound linebacker wanting to rip your head off. But then when you get into an environment that you're not used to, where now you've got a, you know, 400 pound black bear with, you know, three and a half inch claws and canines, and you're not used to this. 
I can just imagine though what that is like in that moment of being humbled going, yeah, I could handle most things. I'm not quite sure what to do with this one. And what's funny is the one year we were out there, you were up on this, like a, like a sniper on this one point and the bear came in down below you and you shot and you came back and man, that was, that was a big bear. And uh, we tracked it. We we're like, I don't know whatever happened. There's no blood. We couldn't figure this thing out. So it was, that was in the morning. So it gets to be evening and I'm, I'm elk hunting and I had a bear tag and I have a bear come walking by me. He wasn't limping. He wasn't doing anything. So I, you know, put an arrow through him and uh, we finally, you know, get to the bear and in his, his forearm, I think you can call it that in his leg, perfect hole goes right between the bones, never did anything. He wasn't even walking with a limp. So we realized that's the bear that Ken had shot that morning. I ended up shooting the thing in the evening. But the funny part is when we go to get the thing out, it had gone in the deepest stuff you have ever walked through in your life. And Tim, our buddy we were hunting with, we're like, man, how are we going to get this thing out of here? Let's call Ken. <laughs> so we get these saws out. We cut a path. Hey, Ken, come here. He comes walking. We're not sure how to get this thing out of here. He grabs this bear, you know, a 300-pound bear, just grabs the thing and pulls it all the way out of there. That was the moment I realized what I was invited for. <laughs> right. Because I'm the world's worst hunter, but I could pull heavy stuff up a hill. But But the thing is this. When you need brothers to show up for you, everyone's got a different gift and a different talent. You know, why are you calling me to do this? Or why are you asking me to go on this trip? Whatever it is. You know, we all have gifts and strengths, and none of them are going to look the same but they all work together for that, whatever that purpose is, you know, that we're trying to do. And I, and I know this about Ken, if I needed anyone, I'm not talking about physically to come watch my back. Um, someone who's going to be there as a brother, he'd be there in a heartbeat, whether it's on the phone, whether my doorstep, let's go for a talk. Um, and that's kind of where I wanted to, to bring things, you know, kind of back down to with all of this, you know, that one question that came out earlier about, um, the one that said about why is it that men struggle with being honest when we're all in the same boat? Now, what is it that keeps us from, from calling those brothers on the phone and saying, I need to be honest with you? Um, man, Ken, I mean, for you, I can't imagine that was even harder. Here's what I remember, and I'll set it up with this, and we'll kind of wind down with this. I get a phone call maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and you had a Harley, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, you had a Harley, of course. And you're riding this thing, and you're, you're riding around the campus where we went to school together. And you called me up, and you said... Brent, I'm, I'm here, I'm riding around campus and I'm, I'm remembering, you know, the glory days and all that kind of stuff. But I'm realizing, you know, I'm getting older and I'm not that, that maybe like that alpha male, like we would think about, like I, I once was that kind of a thing. And I, and I understand as I'm getting older, my limitations now, it, it makes me feel weak sometimes. Um, and it's something that I have to renew my mind with and remember that we're all aging at the same pace and that each age brings with it some new wisdom or something, a gift that God gave us so that we can give it to someone else. That day when you called me on the phone and you were saying, man, I'm riding around here, what was going through your head and where did God take that? The short answer is when God reveals himself to you, not in an intellectual way but in an experiential way. When it actually occurs to you that there really is a God and he is sovereign and that he cares enough about you to have a relationship with you. And so while I was there, 
it was kind of a nostalgic thing where I remembered all those times when I was the person you described and I enjoyed that. And yet I knew I wasn't that person anymore. And I didn't quite know who I was or where this was going. And the thing that came out of that that I learned that I just scribbled down here a thing cannot change the nature of itself unless it is acted upon by something outside of it. That was a selfish, uh, prideful, independent, confident person. Many of those qualities are admired, but your greatest strength can become your greatest weakness. And and I was a sovereign unto myself. That's the way I felt. Okay. And over the course of this redemptive process, I watched myself change. And much of it I can't take credit for. That's, that's what's interesting. This, this person that I had been my entire life that is hardwired into my DNA, don't, don't be mistaken, the, the person that you see now, I still know who I was. And, and in the right circumstances called for it, I'd still be that, that person. But I watched God through the Holy Spirit change me. And that's what I realized. A thing cannot change itself unless it's acted upon by something greater than that outside of it. That happened. So I got to see the sovereign God of the universe. He opened my eyes enough to see that he was changing me. Well, imagine what that revelation looks like, right? When, when you understand how insignificant you are, but God chose to act upon me, to change me, yeah. to go through a redemptive process that he now gives me opportunities to do things like this with you, which is, as you know, uncomfortable for me because I feel way more comfortable in those one-on-one uh, serendipitous moments when God brings a broken man into my life and it's just me and him and nobody knows about it. That's where I'm way more comfortable. Yeah. Because even then the words just come. It's not, it's not me. Mm-hmm. And, and when you actually experience that, there's nothing else like it. And you can't ever go back. One of the things that I, I, I want to say before we wrap up here is this. Remember that saying, it's better to be a warrior or in a garden than a gardener in a, in a war? war. Yeah. yeah. That's what, when I, when, I, when I think about you personally, you know, you have the ability, if in the right circumstance, to be a monster in a good way. I mean, if something needed to be done to protect someone, you would have no second thoughts, no matter. And I know you just came through some surgeries and all that kind of stuff. I still know you well enough. You, if you had one leg left, you'd be kicking somebody. But it's better to be that, that, that warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And, and if you're listening to this right now and you're kind of going, man, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. When you heard every one of my guests that I've been having, we've talked about you know, the things that we've done in, in the order to show what God has done through all that stuff. So what I want you to think about right now is 
this one last question I'll leave you, and then we're going to be going into some more conversations. If you are a member of Unleashed Plus, you'll be able to get into the Unleashed podcast and you know go through what we go after this. But I just wanted to say this. When you're struggling, you're trying to figure out, you know, why am I not finding that peace and contentment in my life, um, serving God or, or looking or finding my purpose, whatever that thing is. You know, the enemy has a way of throwing idols in our face. It's what he does. He wants to throw something that could be fame, could be money, it could be women, it could be whatever that thing was. And how do we know then if we have an idol in our life that's taking our attention away from, from God or the things that he wants? How do, we, how do we identify the idols? Here's how you do it. You sit down and you write down the thing that if that were taken away from you tomorrow, and I'm not talking about like losing a child, I'm not talking about something like that. But if those things that you find your worth and value from, if one of those things was taken away tomorrow, that it would cause you to have unhealthy emotions, you've just found one of your idols. And I can't stress how important it is to be honest. Like we were, when I asked Ken, I said, when were you able to really look and be honest with yourself? This is hard. This is one of the hardest things to do. I've heard Navy SEALs talk about this, you know, the reckoning and coming back and sitting on the edge of a bed and being honest with myself. What are those things that I am putting before God that are hurting my relationship with him and the purpose he has for me? You begin to identify those things by, by looking at them, writing it down. What are the ones causing you unhealthy emotions? Ken said, the only way you're going to be changed is from an external source. It begins internally with my surrender and saying, God, I want what you want. And God, I'm asking you to fill me now. Put my feet on this path as a warrior for you, whatever you call me to do. You just heard, you know, Ken talk about, here's this, this, this guy who did all these cool things, right? But when it came down to the question, what's going to make you laugh? Or what's going to make you cry? He picked the one about cry first because he has a tender heart. Guys, we are called to be warriors in a garden. You were given a strength by God. You are this resistance that we've been talking about to go and change the world. Your strength is needed. Get on your knees and then get on your feet. We'll see you next time.